Let's go ahead and uh, bow our heads in prayer as we look to God's word. Heavenly Father, um, how amazing it is that we can gather to read and uh, comprehend and celebrate and be comforted by, convicted by, equipped by your word. Uh, Father, would all of the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And Father, I pray that you would send your spirit, uh, send him to change us from the inside out, to make us more like Jesus. We beg you uh, that you would equip us to be your servants. We pray in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at, uh, the, I know your bulletin says uh, John 12. Actually, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 19 this morning. It's on page 903 of your bulletin. Again, page 903. It's uh, Luke 19, verse 41 through 44. Uh, the classic text of Jesus uh, entering into Jerusalem. And this morning, I want to approach it from a little bit different angle. Whoops, I think I'm messing there, I'm still on. Uh, I want to ask uh, a question, and it's a question for you kids. Um, how many of you kids, when someone is mean to you, what's the first thing that you want to do to them? I don't know about you. The first thing I want to do is what? Is be mean back, right? <laughs> if someone is mean to you, the most immediate thing, the most natural thing is simply to respond in the exact same way. I, sometimes I have wondered if there is a power greater than revenge. I mean, vengeance, wanting to get people back, is such an amazingly motivating, uh, just empowering thing. You just want to do it. It just takes over, right? We just immediately respond with, oh, this person needs to get it. And it can, in fact, it can dominate our lives. In fact, it dominates a lot of, uh, of our, of our um, literature, a lot of the things that we write, movies, etc. It's all over the place. Um, I remember several years ago, there was a movie um, that I, I can't recommend from the pulpit because of its content. It was a movie uh, called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. It's, it, it did very well at the Oscars. Uh, some wonderful performances. And in fact, the, 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 the lady... Um, I think she got the Oscar for Best Actress. Uh, Frances McDormand is her name. And she, but it's about her, it's about a woman who is, uh, her daughter was brutally murdered and it was unsolved, it went unsolved. And her desire um, you know, for justice becomes all-consuming. And as much as you can identify with her, you can imagine what it would be like to, have a, to be a parent, to have lost a loved one in that way. But the, but, but the story turns on the question of when is too much? When does a good, right desire for justice become something that is out of control, something that consumes and overwhelms? In fact, most recently, again, another, just another, we're in Hollywood here for a second, we'll stay, we'll stay for a minute. Uh, the most recent Batman film, you know, it's called The Batman. And uh, very early on in, in the movie, it's, just, it's interesting to see how Batman is, you know, has sort of changed over the years and how different directors have different takes on it. But early on in the movie, one of the, one of the, you know, one of the henchmen or one of the you know, bad guys looks at Batman and says, who are you? Or who are you supposed to be? And, uh, and he says, he looks at him, he hits him first, of course, and then he says, I'm vengeance. 
<laughs> and so it's not, he doesn't say I'm justice. He says, I'm vengeance. And that's very much the Batman character, right? The Batman character is a, as a boy losing his parents and wanting to live a life of what? Of, of vengeance, of somehow finding the one who murdered his parents. And it's interesting, in the classic movie, the classic novel that was made into a movie, The Count of Monte Cristo, in the actual book, Alexander Dumas has one of his characters say this about anger and about vengeance. He says, hatred is blind. Isn't that interesting? Hatred is blind, and anger is death. Isn't that amazing? The one who pours himself a cup of vengeance is likely to drink a bitter draught. The anger and vengeance, they have this ability to consume us and to make us bitter, resentful. And it never goes away. It never stops. It never ceases. See, the evils, this is what I want to hear this morning. The evils done to us can come to dominate us. Let me say that again. The evils done to us can come to dominate us, to rule our lives. They can, they can, how can they dominate us? First, they can define us. We see ourselves in light of that event. That's how we think of who we are. Each and every day, who we are is defined, determined by what has happened to me or what has happened to a loved one. And this is, this is such a real thing. I mean, it's just, I can't tell you, many of you, may, in this morning, you may look around and see all of you, look at all the nice people here in their nice clothes and they're smiling. But deep down in their stories are trauma, abuse, neglect, wrongs done to them that define who they are. I had one woman look at me uh, in counseling and she said, Bruce, she told all about all that had happened to her, and she said, I'm just damaged goods. I'm damaged goods. No man would want me. No man would ever want me. They can define us. So evils done to us can dominate us first by defining us. Second, they can degrade us. They can degrade us. They can make us feel worthless. I, had, I think I've shared this story before. A, 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 a guy who was 6'2", 6'3", Italian guy from New York, a massive guy, looked like some guy straight out of the Sopranos or you know, some of the mafia, you know, somebody. but he told me a story about how his father was just so incredibly verbally abusive as a kid. And he would escape through, through eating. That was how he escaped. So he would just, I would eat. And, and he said to me, something I've never forgotten, he said, you know, he said, I... He said, if, if, you're, if you are told, excuse me, pardon the language here, but he says, if you're told you're a piece of crap enough times, you become to believe it. And I just, that is such a, that is such a, a powerful thing that, that over time, the evils done to us can degrade us. We can look in the mirror and think, you know what? I'm not worth anything. So they can, de they can define us, they can degrade us, but also the evils done to us can dictate our life direction. They can just sort of say, this is what we're going, from now on, I am going to, because that's what Batman is, right? That's what these various characters are all. Their, their entire life becomes consumed by reacting to what has been done to them. And then, and then finally, uh, evils can dominate us by defining us, degrading us, 
dictating our life direct direction, but also dictating our disposition toward others. I, uh, I once interacted with a woman who um, had had some horrible things done to her by a man. And it impacted, understand my judging, I'm just describing, it impacted how she saw men from there on out. Every man that she met, the evil done to her determined her disposition, how she looked at and, and interacted with others. Because every man was like that man. Okay? So evil's done to us. So I want you to hear just how powerful that is. I mean, I, I want to, uh, the, the, the Polish uh, poet um, Czesław Miłosz, uh, one, I mean, one of the most amazing poets, I think, of the 20th century. He, he is, his, Miłosz's life was amazing. He was in the Russian Revolution in 19, as a child, he was in the Russian Revolution in 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, right, when the, when the communists took over. <clears throat> he was in Warsaw when the Nazis invaded Poland. Uh, he witnessed the, the horrors of the Warsaw Ghetto. I don't know if you know, if you know what the Warsaw Ghetto was, but um, an absolutely a horrible, hor- one of the hor- most horrific moments of all of World War II. He saw the corruption of Poland under the, under the USSR as a diplomat. The guy was in the wrong places pretty much his whole life. And he saw such incredible uh, oppression and injustice and, and, and horrific um, war crimes, etc. And he writes this as a poet. He says, how far off those years when I could write poems about Italy, telling about fields in Siena. He, talks, he goes on to talk about how far off those days were when I could just celebrate you know, the beauty of life. And why can't he celebrate the beauty of life? Because of what he has seen. He has seen so much, and he continues, if you have a nail in your shoe, what then? Do you love that nail? Same with me. In other words, he's saying, listen, I have seen so many horrors that I can't write about anything else but the horrors that I've seen. It dominates his life. And Paul, the Apostle Paul was no exception. But we've seen this. We went through Romans, uh, Romans 12 through 15 together. We've seen how Paul, what's, what does he say? That climactic verse of chapter 12. He says, do not be overcome by evil. That is to say, don't be overcome, don't be ruled by, don't be dominated by the evils done to you. And Paul, and Paul knows that as one who was so wronged so many times, he knew from experience just how powerful the wrongs done to us can be. And so the question is this, the question that all of us have to face. How do we keep the evils done to us from dominating us? How do we do that? When we begin to recognize just how powerful these things are, what do we do about it? Which, of course, Jesus, he's going to show us the way this morning. If ever there were a person in history who has endured evil, it was Jesus. His life was a, lo- was a long story of rejection. And if we follow Jesus and how he responds to the evils done to him, listen to this, gang, this is amazing. If we follow him in how he responds to the evils done to us, something incredible will happen. He will redeem them. Isn't that amazing? He can take the ugliest, most painful wound in your life, and he can bring beauty and wisdom and hope. Do you long for that? 
Do you long not to be dominated by the things that have been done to you? Well, Jesus is going to show us how to do that this morning. That's one, that's one of the most beautiful things about the Christian life, is that God can take what is evil and bring about real good. Isn't that amazing? Just real quick, turn to the left here. I'm going to just, just uh, break notes here for a second. Turn to Psalm 126. It's one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 126 speaks of, uh, of the captives returning to Zion, of the re- returning to Jerusalem. The, the, uh, the, uh, God's people had been exiled into Babylon for their, their disobedience. And this psalm is a psalm that celebrates what God can do even in the midst of the face of such tragedy. Listen to this. It's, so beautiful. it's on page 532, Psalm 126. It's on page 532 of your pew Bible. 532. It says this. Listen to this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like men who dreamed. See, when the Lord actually brought back, when, when, when Jerusalem, Zion is a poetic name for Jerusalem, when Zion was restored, that's to say when it was rebuilt, when, it was, when God's people returned, says, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. And listen to this. Verse, this beautiful prayer, verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. It's a beautiful analogy. The Negev, like often in those climates, you'd have streams that would come and go, right? They would be intermittent. The rain would fall down and rain, and then they would dry up and they'd be gone. So it wasn't this constant flowing river. You just never knew if it was. The whole idea was like restore, bring restoration. So like these streams, the rains come, the streams come, and guess what happens? Everything turns green, goes from dry to a beautiful garden-like environment. Verse 5, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And what if God could take the wounds in your life? What if he could take the tears that you've shed and turn them into songs of joy. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Isn't that beautiful? Such rich agricultural metaphors. Do you believe that God can do that? Let's take a look. So our key moments, our hurts, listen to this, our hurts can be key moments in life. I, mean, I just, I just never knew that as a younger man. I just had no idea how the wrongs done to us can just be so powerful. And um, I, I can remember as a kid thinking, you know, people would say to me, "Oh, I, they, they struggle to forgive others." And I'd always be like, "Man, I, I don't, I don't get that. I used, I'm, I'm a terrible sinner, and God forgives me, so." I'm going to forgive others. You know why I can say that? Because I've never been wronged really badly. (laughs) When you've been really wronged, forgiveness is a really hard thing to do. And so the point is that when we we have been wronged deeply, those are key moments in life. They're massive. They're key in the sense that we we can go down two paths. We can go down the path of becoming more calloused Kids, do you know what calluses are? After church, maybe your mom or dad or something like that, I have calluses on my hands from, from going to the gym. 
have these calluses, and the calluses, you can do anything you want to this callus, and you're not going to feel a thing. It's just, it's just amazing how that works. There's your, your, your nerves don't, there's just, it's just, so you can become calloused and unfeeling. And why do we do that? Why would we respond to pain and struggle and the wrongs done to us by, by becoming calloused? Because we don't want to feel anymore, right? I'm so tired of being hurt. I'm so tired of being taken. I don't want anyone to do that to me again. So we can either become calloused or we can become more Christ-like. So God brings, our, God brings hurts, our hurts into our life. And why does he do that? He does it in order to grow us. God can so use our hurts that we can come not only to grieve them, listen to this, but to actually in time be grateful for them. So in Luke 19, we encounter Jesus, and he's approaching his final destination, along with his followers and his, his adversaries, his foes, along with countless other Jews, he's making his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And aside from, from, from Jesus, our story's got three main actors. First, you've got Jesus' final destination. That's Jerusalem. At Passover, the holy city is a powder keg. It is overflowing. Usually during this time of year, it would swell to about somewhere between five, six, even eight times its size. So literally the, the, the entire Jewish world is descending upon Jerusalem. It is energetic. It is, it's a, it is a, uh, uh, the climax of the Jewish calendar. Everyone is there. They're celebrating. The pilgrims have come a long distance to celebrate together. Uh, it is explosive. There are all manner of political issues going on. The Romans and the Jews are, uh, are hardly in, agree- in, in agreement with each other. Uh, and not only that, but God's people, especially the Jewish elite, were incredibly arrogant, incredibly ingrown, elitist, exclusive, isolated, inward-looking. This is Jesus' final destination. And Jesus' followers, he's going along with all the pilgrims and and, and followers and fellow pilgrims, they are ecstatic. They're wired. They're worshiping, at least for the moment. They are are lost in, in appropriate, if you might say, naive acclamation of Jesus as the Messiah. The disciples are like kids at a slumber party who've had too much sugar. Right? They're ecstatic, they're excited, but they don't really know what they're doing. So you have Jesus' final destination, you have Jesus' followers, and then finally you have Jesus' foes. Those are the Pharisees. They're anxious, they're apprehensive. How will the Romans respond to a public demonstration that proclaims a new Jewish king, a Messiah, at a Jewish festival that celebrates Israel's past deliverance from a foreign power? Think about that. The Pharisees... The Pharisees are the kids at the slumber party who are the firstborn. <laughs> they're wondering, this is going to go bad. Right? They're worried. So Jerusalem's overflowing. It's, um, uh, it's politically explosive. It's spiritually arrogant. Jesus' followers are ecstatic. His foes are, are, are apprehensive. And what about Jesus? Let's read this in Luke 19, verse 41. Luke writes, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Here the word peace has to do with the idea of flourishing. 
not just like an inner peace or a calm. Jesus, he sees the city and he weeps. And he weeps because he says, would that you have known what was best for you. Would that you had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So when the city that would murder him came into view, what did Jesus do? How did he respond to his wrongdoers, to those who wanted one thing, his death? His first response is to weep. I think it's one of the most amazing things in all of Scripture. Who is this who responds to his enemies with tears? How does he do it? Jesus is not weeping here just over mere disappointment. It's not sentimentality. Everywhere in Luke, the same verb, uh, klio, the Greek word klio, is used to describe a grieving widow who's just lost her only son, chapter 7, verse 13. It's used of family members who are grieving the death of a 12-year-old girl in chapter 8, verse 52. Jesus is grieving like he lost a loved one. So in pastoral ministry, I've seen three common ways that people respond to wrongdoing. First is indignation. It's indignation that often morphs in time into condemnation and even arrogant judgmentalism. So first is indignation. The second way I've seen people respond to wrongdoing is with tolerance. But tolerance can, be, it can become indifference. It can become just enablement, passive, not really addressing the issue. Finally, it can be grief. People can respond with grief, a grief that can often morph into a woundedness, into a despair. And here, we see Jesus responding with a tear-filled love. It's just an amazing thing. So why did Jesus weep for Jerusalem? Well, how can we learn to weep for those who have wronged us? Well, first, Jesus weeps because of Jerusalem's foolishness. This is really important. to see the foolishness of those who have wronged us. They do not know what's best for them. Look again at verse 42. Jesus laments, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Again, peace here is not an inner calmness or serenity. It, it, or it's not even an absence of conflict. It's about flourishing. Jesus is saying, If only you had had wisdom the ability to see what is best for you. Jesus looks out onto a city of persons, priests, scribes, teachers of the law, who called themselves God's people, who thought they knew better. They said, I got this. They didn't need his help. They didn't need his correction. Guys, it's sobering. It's terrifying. Sin makes us into fools. So often we think of sin as just, oh, it's just a wrong, something you do, it's wrong. Oh, it's wrong. But it's not just wrong. It's irrational. It doesn't lead to what is best 
would, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace if you had known what is best for you. So sin is, sin is not just wrong, it's irrational. It's foolishness. Sin debilitates. What did Jesus say? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Sin debilitates us. And when we can begin, listen, begin. I'm asking you a tall order. Jesus is making a tall order of us this morning. He's asking us to begin to see those who've wronged us as fools, as debilitated, as those who are not healthy. He's not minimizing culpability or responsibility. He's asking us to look through the lens of sin as foolishness. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus wanted the best for his enemies. Do you want the best for those who've wronged you? Oh, I don't. I don't at all. Jesus wanted the best for them. He loved them. But now listen to this. Now time had run out for Jerusalem. Look what Jesus goes on to say. Jesus weeps not only the foolishness of God's people, he weeps for their fate. So first their foolishness, but he weeps because of their fate. They didn't know what was best. Listen to this. And now, this is why Palm Sunday is so hard. And now it was too late. Look in verse 42. Jesus, after saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day what would make for peace, but what does he say? But now they are hidden from your eyes. And then employing the language of the Old Testament prophets, Jesus describes the future destruction of Jerusalem in verses 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade. Excuse me here, I'm sorry. Will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation or you did not recognize the time of god's coming to you now listen in the mid-60s so jesus is speaking here somewhere in the early uh, probably early 30s a.d and in the mid-60s in response to the jewish revolt the roman forces would fulfill jesus's words the first century the first century jewish historian josephus writes listen to this Quote, Caesar ordered the whole city, that's the city of Jerusalem, and the temple to be burned to the ground, leaving only the loftiest of the towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west, the latter as an encampment for the garrison that was to remain, and the towers, and we're going to leave a few towers, you know, we're going to leave those up. Why? To indicate to posterity the nature of the city and the strong defenses which had yet yielded to Roman prowess. <laughs> in other words, don't destroy the whole thing because we want to make sure that there's a couple towers that are, that are really impressive there left. Why? So all of, all of history can go, wow, those were amazing towers that should have been defended but couldn't be. Why? Because of Roman, Roman might. Don't mess with Roman power. And he's saying it's exactly what happens. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city, goes, Josephus goes on to say, was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Isn't that amazing? I mean, they came in and they destroyed everything. 
Listen to this. This is key. Jesus knew that his wrongdoers weren't going to get away with anything. Do you think that the ones who've wronged you will get away with anything? Jesus realizes that God has simply given them, God has simply given them over to what they wanted. Oh, it's just so scary. And this is the key point, guys. Knowing God's future wrath frees us to show God's mercy now. Let me say that again. Knowing, being persuaded, that like Jesus was, being persuaded of God's future wrath frees us to show God's mercy now. Does that make sense? So Jesus, he's, he's able to weep. Why? He sees the foolishness of his wrongdoers, of his foes, but he also sees their inevitable fate. They're not getting away with anything. And I think this is where Jesus is so, it's just so profound here, is that Jesus sees that the wrongs done to him, they are against him, but they're not about him. Does that make sense? They're against him, and Jesus is the one being wronged. But at the end of the day, Jesus sees that whom are they disobeying? It is God. And God will address it. The one primarily wronged is not me. It's not Jesus. It was his Father. And listen, when we can remove ourselves out from the situation like that, when we can depersonalize it, because my temptation, I'll make it all about, I mean, me. I mean, who else is there to make it? Right? So when we make it all about us, that will doom us to bitterness, to resentment, and anger. That's what happens. Arrogance slides in there to a legitimate wrong, and it makes us consumed with that sort of bitterness and just rage. Vengeance, we just cut people off. So the wrongs done to Jesus were against him, but he knew they weren't about him. Okay? So why did Jesus reap? Why did, why did he weep? His wrongdoer's foolishness and his wrongdoer's inevitable fate. Does that make sense? Jesus, who is love, comes and he's rejected by his own. Does that make any sense to you? Does that compute? Could Jesus have done something different? What more could he have done? It's just an amazing thing to see. So let's just make a few applications here and we'll, we'll land the plane. <clears throat> Do you want the evils done to you to dominate you? You have to, and I'm thinking to me, oh no, that's the Sunday school answer. But in your life right now, do you really want, do you see how much they, they can control you? So often we don't. We need someone else to come along and say, hey, do you realize that what has happened to you has come to own you, to define you, to degrade you, to determine the direction of your life? We often just don't see it. We just become consumed over time. I am so guilty of that. Do you want the evils done to you to dominate you? I want to encourage you to write, actually go home this week and consider writing a lament. 
Write, something, write it down. Get your words on paper and write. What have you lost? What has been taken from you? And talk, write it, write it as, a, as a prayer to God. God, I'm so hurting. Here's what I've lost. Explain to Him your sorrow, your grief, your anger. Maybe you can bring someone into it. I would love to walk with you in that. To cry with you. To listen to you. To be outraged for you. Listen, one of the key things of love, listen, and it's so important. If you have been wronged, having someone weep for you, with you, having someone get angry, oh man, I can't tell you how important. I mean, I recently had a pastor friend of mine who has been through a living nightmare. One, a local pastor, so faithful. And he, and he shared, he called me, I mean, shared with me something that happened. And I just, this is, this is your pastor at a low moment in some ways. <laughs> I was so angry. <laughs> I, a number of colorful words came out of my mouth, etc. You know, and I just I was just so mad for him. And and he just he said, Thank you so much for getting angry. <laughs> why? Why is that why why was he grateful for the anger? Because it shows that something really was wrong. It legitimated his, his, his sorrow, his grief. It legitimated the fact that he had been deeply wronged. Right? As many of you have had things happen in your life, and loved ones did what? Nothing. They pretended, oh, they just moved on. They didn't do anything. They didn't grieve. They didn't get angry. How many women are there who've been wronged, abused, and their dads knew about it and didn't do a damn thing? You talk about degrading demoralizing. Come along and invite someone else, a brother or sister, into your grief. Listen, and I'm going to encourage you to look at my talk about your adversary for a second. I realize this may be very personal for some of you. But for persons who've wronged you, I want to encourage you, one, see the person for all that they are. The whole person. They, are, they have done ter- something terrible to you or to a loved one, but there's more to them than that. Listen to this. One of the things I had, one of my, one of my counselors uh, that, I've, uh, that I've gone to uh, in the past uh, recommended I do something that was one of the most difficult things I've had to do, but one of the most helpful things. And so this may or may not be for you, but he had me to actually get a picture of the person who had wronged me deeply. And I, you know, it's easy to do on the internet today. You can go on, you know, social media or whatever. But you can see, I get a mugshot, so to speak, of the person. Three times a day, I had to bring that picture up. I had to look at it. You know why? You know what happens when you see the, per- the, the face of the person who's wronged you deeply? It is just a visceral. Your body responds to it. And that's what he was trying to evoke. He said, I want this to be a psychological, mental, intellectual exercise. You look at that face, your body responds. And then I had to pray for them. In the prayer, I had to name what they had done to me as a way of reminding them, this was, this was a real wrong. And I had to pray for God's mercy in their life. And I had to even celebrate them in some sort of way. Whew! <laughs> I did that for three times a day. I did it for almost three months. And I tell you what, it is what an incredibly helpful exercise. Incredibly helpful. So that's just part of again, seeing the person for all that they are. And then finally, um, I, want you, I would ask that you consider praying as Jesus is doing here, praying for the wrongdoer. It is good for you. You don't just do it for them. 
right? We pray for them, not just for their sake. You pray for them for your own sake. It will actually help you. Does that make sense? When you pray for people, you bring them before the Lord, and it's actually going to change your heart toward them. And the final question I would encourage you to ask is this. Am I any different? At the end of the day, you've got to ask, am I any different? Am I, am I really better? Apart from God's grace, am I better? Listen, there's nowhere more, I think, that God shows His holiness than in His mercy. Jesus weeps over our sin. He does. Will we weep for the sins of others? Let's pray together.